All right, well, welcome to Proles of the Book Club. This week, we're going to be moving on to part five of Capital, which is the production of absolute and relative surplus value. And part five starts with chapter six, which is absolute and relative surplus value. Yeah, so we'll go through the inter introductions just in the order we're listed in the group chat, starting with Connor. Um, so names, pronouns, and what else are you reading? Hello, my name's Connor. I use he, him pronouns. And this week, apart from Capital, I've been reading Alexandra Kollontai's novel, A Great Love, which is really cool. I didn't know she actually did novels as well. So yeah, oh. check it out if you can find it somewhere. Hi, I'm Andrew, uh, he, him pronouns, and I have been reading uh, The Morning Deluge on Suji, and I think I'm only at uh, Mao's early 20s at this point, but it's, it's still really great. It's a great read. I advise anybody who can to grab a copy. What does it cover? It's uh, the revolution from what years? Hold on a second. Let me check the cover because I haven't remembered this. Uh, 1893 to 1854, Mao Zedong and the Chinese Revolution. So it literally starts out in just t describing Mao's childhood and starts chronologically with his life and like nice. how his life parallels the revolution. And they have a big part in the intro where they're uh, talking about the way they use his early childhood and the budding of the revolution, but they're not to say that he was a great, like Han Suyin goes in great, uh, length to make sure that you know that he's not like saying Mao was the revolution but like at the same time like the way but he kind of was but yeah like really good read cool um, I'm Seamus uh, currently I am reading Black Shirts and Reds again just to be ready for the next recording session but That's i just yeah right uh i seeing that i am like very not as much prepared today um i uh ended up finishing gosh what was it oh uh, marxism and the national question um oh nice which was really good um i people should definitely read that um, no, i would like to do a session on that um yeah we've discussed it it's yeah it's been talked about I just got a copy of it. Uh, I just got a copy too. Is it different to Marxism and the National Colonial Question? Yeah, the National and Colonial Question is uh, like 330 pages, something like that. Whereas this is like 90, 120. I can't remember. So it's so like... It contain the same things or...? I believe so. I think the National and Colonial co uh, Question is just the expanded, uh, complete... like. Okay, cool. I don't have a copy then, yeah. Yeah, it's a great piece. It's very short, um, but I do need to actually get a like national and colonial question. Um, and then Same. I I just went through in a matter of a couple weeks imperialism. What is to be done? DNHM. Um, nice. And then foundations of Leninism. Uh, yeah, just oh, state and revolution. It was it was a banger of a uh, two weeks. Um, and foundations then, is now my backpack book. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's in my backpack. Too. I just keep it there because I could pick up foundations anytime. It's a good, yeah. it's good. I've not read it. I've just picked up a copy, um, last week. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's so good. All right. So we're on chapter 16 of capital, which is absolute and relative surplus value. 
And this chapter, it really echoes what we read in chapters six and seven. So we're not going to go into it in very great detail. But what you need to know is that absolute uh, surplus value is surplus value brought about by the extending of the working day, whereas relative surplus value is surplus value that comes about from the increases in productivity. So we're going into like the dual character of how surplus arises. And uh, like then we get into concepts about the collective laborer and how like when we first started talking about selling our labor, it was we were talking about individual laborers going into the marketplace and selling their labor for amount of time. And now um, he starts talking a little bit more about how that's no longer the case, that you're no longer individual laborers bargaining with the capitalists, but the capitalist is is setting forth this social concept of what the price of labor is. Yeah, he starts off the chapter going, um, just touching on that idea, I think he mentioned in chapter five about labor being a process between man and nature. Oh, yeah. Kind of the the bedrocks um, that, you know, he, he pulls out in, in volume three a lot later, but about the uh, the dialectic between man and nature. Well, one of the things he says is, is uh, like the most fruitful soil is the most fitted for the growth of capitalist mode of production. So like mm -hmm. where there are natural resources, where there is fertile ground for growing crops is where capitalism is most likely to take root. Yeah, it's like so far as labor process is purely individual, one and the same labor unites himself, all the functions, the later on become separated. When an individual appropriates natural objects for his livelihood, no one controls him but himself. Afterwards, he is controlled by others. A single man cannot operate upon nature without calling on his own muscles to play under the control of his own brain. As in the natural body, head and hand wait upon each other. So the labor process unites the labor, the hand, that of the head. Later on, they, um, they part company and even become deadly foes. The product ceases to be the direct product of the individual and becomes a social product, the product and the common uh, by collective behavior. That's kind of the, uh, the foundations of social metabolism um, that, I mean, he, he develops um, much further on, um, not in Capital Volume 1, um, but it's like the bedrock even of um, concepts of like ecology, which is something that's really interesting. Hmm. Just to come back to what you said earlier about how the place with the most fertile ground is the best place for capitalism. Am I right in saying that this chapter that mm -hmm. if it's kind of too fertile ground, if everything's growing, if everything's perfect already pretty much naturally, then it's not always the best place for capitalism to develop. Well, yeah, because um, I think he, you're talking about uh, a point at which he talks about how when it's easy enough for people to get their means of subsistence, um, that it's actually harder for um, the capitalists to find places for the extraction of surplus value. Yes, yeah, that's it. Like, basically, it's why you have to dispossess people of the land, um, like in the enclosures and whatnot, um, or you have to basically like undermine like an economic function of an individual region um and it kind of that interfaces with the national question like it's um typically these like you have 
smaller regional areas which can and should be able to like kind of somewhat self-govern when it comes to their productive forces but whenever it comes to like external capital it comes in and weakens your like the bonds and whatnot and um i mean it leads to the exploitation of of the workers within that like any given society and then also provides like a way for capital to expand through that kind of mechanism it's imperialism baby yep and actually towards the very end of this uh session when we get into chapters 22 i think we'll be able to bring a lot of that back to um mm -hmm. colonialism and imperialism as well oh yeah another thing he sets out in this chapter is apart from just generally going over the concepts of surplus value which i think we mentioned them already didn't we absolute and yep. relative yeah yep. so aside from doing that he's talking about how capital it's not about the production of um capitalist production anyway it's not about the production of commodities, but the production of surplus value. And he yeah. has a section where he's talking about how being productive under capitalism doesn't mean you're making loads of things. It means that you're you're kind of contributing to the self-valorization of capital. It's okay to be not productive. Yeah. <laughs> There's this, or I guess, part here, like talking about how relative surplus value is absolute since it compels the absolute prolongation of the workday beyond the labor time necessary unto the existence of the laborer himself. So it's like, like the laborer is consistently being pushed farther and farther into producing more for the sake of the, the, the like basically the growth and also the, the productive, not, not the productivity, but the, uh, the profit, uh, motive rather than actually basically working for you know their own means and and meeting that they're further driven into this by you know working for their relative surplus value and and they're not actually producing use value and towards the end of this um chapter he goes into how like bourgeois economists like ricardo they acknowledged that surplus value was a thing, but they just tended to call it profit. Like they didn't, they never dug into the origins of surplus value or the dual nature of it or anything like that. I mean, they, they really couldn't. And cause it would, you know, totally undermine their whole mode of production. So like they didn't touch on these things cause it was like these concepts totally undermine the bourgeois, you know, foundation of capital. Yeah, it's a very uh, characteristic takedown of them at the end of the chapter when he says, on a level plain, simple mounds look like hills, and the insipid flatness of our present bourgeoisie is to be measured by the altitude of its, quote, great intellects. <laughs> yeah, that is a spicy marks. I like that one. Yeah. I got that highlighted too. <laughs> yeah, I honestly just like how um, Marx is drawing off a lot of these um, either moral philosophers. Well, yeah, they're not even economists, really. Like, even Smith uh, earlier on, it, I mean, he's not an economist. It's a moral philosopher trying to talk about, like, economic functions. They're not willing to actually dig into the nitty-gritty or, like, engage with um, the actual, like, any basically intellectual questions or critique anything, which is what's so different here is that, like, Marx is, um, I mean, he's making a critical analysis of of these assumed questions. I think that's why he's coming back to these definitions of um, surplus value again, because it's really important to remember that 
at the time, like there wasn't a theory of surplus value really, or not a working one, like like Marx put, is putting forward in this book. Yeah, it's it, it just didn't really exist before. That's what he considered his contribution to political economy to be. That's why he really wants to drive it home and make sure like, by the way, if you didn't get this earlier on in the book, make sure you get it because like it's the whole point. Yeah. And yeah, I think that that covers chapter 16 pretty good. So we can move on to chapter 17, which is changes of magnitude in the price of labor, power, and in surplus value. There was just one other thing in chapter 16 that I thought was quite nice. Um, there's a quote where he was talking about, I think he pretty much does away with the notion of surplus value being a natural occurrence. He says, we may say that surplus value rests on a natural basis, but only in the very general sense that there is no natural obstacle absolutely preventing one man from lifting from himself the burden of the labor necessary to maintain his own existence and imposing it on another. Just as there is no unconquerable natural obstacle to the consumption of the flesh of one man by another, it will be absolutely mistaken to attach mystical notions to this spontaneously developed productivity of labor, as is sometimes done. Hmm. For me, that was kind of like a almost like a human nature type argument saying like surplus value just happens like when you make things this this surplus value it's like a natural thing it's it's i think it's interesting that he pointed out that it's not yeah it's like one of those things that for two seconds if you think about it's just like wait a minute like kropotkin being an evolutionary biologist talks about human nature not being either hyper individualistic or like it can be carried on to the productive forces themselves are not necessarily inherent to human nature like like as humans we're not hell-bent on i guess harvesting each other's labor we, we don't want to um cause pain and harm against another person just t generally now of course you have fascists and uh and, and I guess liberals nowadays with um, their support of a economic system that does actually harm everyone. But that's just the way it is, they say. Yeah. Whenever it comes down to it, it's like the, these things are not. All right. Yeah. As, as both Stalin and Lenin point out, drawing from Marx, it's not, you know, just the way it is. It's it's coming from something entirely different. Like it's it's coming from a a, a development, yes, but it, it's a development that comes from an imbalance. So I mean, you don't work forty hours a week and then fuck all just to you know just because of how selfish you are. Yeah, which uh, really does lead us right into section one and length of the working day. Well, yeah, yeah, because I mean, this uh, this chapter. I, I really liked in that is broken down really simply about like the variables by which capital is flexible. So like you said, uh, section one is um, the length of the working day and intensity of labor constant, uh, productiveness of labor variable. So just to drag it out without getting into any of these uh, too deeply, I'll just name off the sections just so you get an idea of what this chapter is about. So then section two is Working day constant, productiveness of labor constant, intensity of labor variable. Then section three is productiveness and intensity of labor constant, length of the working day variable. And then like like so throughout this chapter, we're we're examining like the ways in which the capitalist is flexible in finding the way in which they will gain their surplus value. 
whether it be absolute or relative. Yeah, and I think at the start of the chapter, he starts off with that really simple explanation, just saying, he says, the value of labor power is determined by the value of the means of subsistence habitually required by the average worker. I find he does this all the time, like starts and finishes chapters with really important points that are really simple to digest, which is kind of useful when he's, uh, well, I mean, you've seen how he writes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is where he talks about the three laws of the value of labor power. The first law, a working day of given length always creates the same amount of value, no matter how the productiveness of labor and with it mass of the product and price of each single commodity produced may vary. Number two is surplus value and the value of labor power vary in opposite directions. A variation in the productiveness of labor, its increase or diminution, causes a variation in the opposite direction in the value of labor power and in the same direction in surplus value. There was um, basically in this section, he, uh, he basically lays out his methods, um, but just like assuming that commodities are sold at their value and the price of labor power rises occasionally above its value, but never sinks below it. Um, that's like, you know, he's assuming that even if the system is working absolutely perfectly according to, um, previous air quotes, economists, uh, perceptions of how the system works, which really strikes me because I was just discussing this with, um, or I guess I was discussing change, um, theory of revolution and whatnot with a libertarian this freaking week and i was explaining yeah i know i was uh i was like yeah look even if this system works perfectly and you just leave it to sit aside like it does exactly you know what what he lays out like the intensity of of labor varies um you know there's it it typically does actually you know rise exponentially because you know your your production has to continuously rise exponentially as does your extraction if you're going to um have any growth or if you're going to um get profit and so it's like that ultimately does lead to um centralizations of um wealth and and resources and finance capital it leads to um it, it leads directly to the system that we call imperialism so i i was like explaining this because it's like it's, it's pretty simple that like here in this study and especially this chapter he's talking about you know this system even if it functioned that way it would still end up working out to you know become hyper exploitative yeah i think he doesn't really leave any wiggle room throughout the work for people saying oh but if you just you know if you tweak this or if you change this then it'll work the the whole assumption he takes throughout the whole book is if it works absolutely perfectly as if as, as it's supposed to it's still really fucked for everybody well not everybody yeah. but you know everyone who it's counts. by its nature extractive capital's defining feature is its necessity for growth right money becomes capital once it's used purely for the purpose of expanding upon our exchange value right so that by its nature just the sound of it you can tell it's a parasitic concept so there's a couple of things at the back end of this chapter uh, chapter 17 
which I thought were quite interesting. There's one, one first quote, only the abolition of the capitalist form of production would permit the reduction of the working day to the necessary labor time. But even in that case, the latter would expand to take up more of the day and for two reasons. First, because the worker's condition of life would improve and his aspirations become greater. And second, because a part of what is now surplus labor would then count as necessary labor, namely the labor which is necessary for the formation of a social fund for reserve and accumulation. I think it's quite a rare, it's a rare look into what Marx would kind of envision a socialist society to look like. It's not often in this piece that he's talking about the future. He's really yeah. most of the time committed to talking about what the situation is now and like really deeply, but yeah, he's usually looking in the present. Yeah, it's one of those rare glimpses of, of what it could look like to Marx. I think immediately after that, actually, he says, the more the productivity of labor increases, the more the working day can be shortened. And the more the working day shortened, the more the intensity of labor can increase. It's basically made me think of automation and what the intention of that is supposed to be, or what we would imagine it's supposed to be, whereby automation, you would think, makes people's lives easier because it automates all the jobs. People don't have to work. In the UK lately, Ian Duncan Smith, who is just like a conservative millionaire asshole, has just decided that um, they're going to increase the pension age to 75 by 2035 just despite Holy the fact shit, that 75? living yeah. life expectancy Jesus. has stalled or is possibly falling even in the uk yeah i know it's declined in the u.s your entire life yeah literally jesus christ i mean there's no retirement in sight for most of us i know i nope i've got none in sight i'm most likely going to be working till i'm dead oh i just assume the world's going to end in about 20 years that's not that long from now. <laughs> I'll just be in debt for a while, so, you know. I might just go to school forever. Rack up that debt until I either topple capitalism or die. See, I mean, I'm kind of banking on that. Yeah, I, I think we all are. So, yeah, that's most of what I have for Chapter 17. I mean, in this chapter, we're... we're like Harvey states, uh, we're talking about the differences between what labor receives as a commodity, be it wages or peace, uh, time wages or peace wages, and what labor produces, and that's commodities. And, and we're showing the ways that capital kind of contorts and bends itself to always find the greatest degree of uh, surplus value for itself. That takes us on to chapter 18 different formulae for the rate of surplus value, yep. which is a whole lot of algebra. So if you hate that, you're going to hate this. <laughs> See, ironically enough, this is what made me actually care about algebra. So I'm generally terrible at math, but reading capital is what like actually was like, oh, hey, this actually makes sense. I mean, the impression I got from this chapter, which somebody please correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that he kind of lays out the Marxist formula for surplus value initially, which is surplus value over variable capital, S over V, or surplus value over the value of labor power, or surplus labor over necessary labor. Those are the various formulas, the Marxist formulas for capital. And then he goes in to explain a bunch of other formula that have been put forth by bourgeois economists and some that have yet to be that he's anticipating. Like that's the general feeling I got from this chapter. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a very, very short, succinct chapter in comparison to like the entire rest of the book. Yeah. He also signs this one off with a bit of a um. It's it's not as harsh as the last one, but talking about Adam Smith, he says, "Capital, therefore, is not only the command of labor, as Adam Smith thought, it is essentially the command over unpaid labor, all surplus value, whatever particular form, profit, interest, or rent, it may subsequently crystallize into." is in substance the materialization of unpaid labor time. The secret of the self-valorization of capital resolves itself into the fact that it has at its disposal a definite quantity of the unpaid labor of other people. Yeah. Who has the air horn? Great. Well, we got it for when I was um, in my previous job. We just it just degraded to the point where everyone hated the situation, and so we just took to making uh, hot noises <laughs> over the speakers. But which was fun. It it improved it improved the thing. Yeah, bringing up morale. Yeah, cooperation. But yeah, and this um, on that note, this is where we're talking about how um, Adam Smith and them conflated the rate of profit with the rate of surplus. Wrong. Wrong. No, I mean, he was wrong. Sorry, you were right. Oh, he was wrong. Okay, good. <laughs> rate of profit, whack. Rate of surplus, good. Rate of surplus, tight as fuck. <laughs> Turns out Adam Smith wasn't that uh, bright when it came to, you know, figuring out economic systems. But we are also learning he wasn't as terrible and horrifying as as you would think based on the people oh, who love yeah. him today. Like, he's uh, definitely... well fucking bad like as as humanly bad as most most uh rich white folks Mm -hmm. of the time um but his theories in a lot of places were were foundational for marx so like he he got so close in a lot of ways and without uh some of the things he said i don't think we would have gotten marx yeah for sure i mean to be honest though because what marx is really doing is the the dialectical analysis of economy whereas you know it's it's the foundation of the analysis whereas i feel like that's kind of exactly the gap that previous economists had is that they were missing things yeah he was bringing their thoughts their inevitable conclusion right exactly so like them having an idea of economy a lot of like of economic um theory makes a lot of sense but marx taking that and taking a dialectical analysis of it makes perfect sense yeah, one thing he doesn't do is launch like ideological attacks against other e- economists of the era. When someone's wrong, he'll definitely say they're wrong. But if they're right, he'll say, this is what they got right up until this point, whereas I'm going to improve upon it. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, because exactly. he's, not, he's not necessarily attacking the ideological basis of capital. He's attacking the material basis of it. Like what people think capital is is very different than what it is. It's like 90% of the time he's saying, Ricardo, you idiot. And the other 10% of the time saying, nah, you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that pretty thoroughly covers um, part five of the book. That was part five, the production of absolute and relative surplus value. And this is bringing us on to part six, which starts with chapter 19. 19. Yeah. Let me find this. Here. Yeah. Part six is wages. Yeah. And uh, chapter 19 is the transformation of the value and respective price of labor power into wages. My first little note here is um, talking about the price of labor. 
And the price of labor is the sum paid for a given quantity of labor. And this is where we're talking about uh, dollars an hour, you know, salary a week, salary a year. It's, it's your labor time. It's how you sell your labor. And then going further into that, when the capitalists speak of the value of labor, what they are actually referring to is the market price of labor. This is where um, he starts talking about, or what David Harvey mentions as like the tautology of what capitalists perceive uh, the value of labor. Because like, if you look at it from their way of denying um, surplus value in the way that it is, you'd think they were saying that the value of labor is the value of labor. But in reality, what Marx is saying is that the value of labor is always greater than the price of labor. Otherwise, there would be no surplus value for the capitalist to extract. Yeah, and he also mentions the kind of difference between labor power and labor itself. He says it's not labor which directly confronts the possessor of money on the commodity market, but rather the worker. What the worker is selling is his labor power. As soon as his labor actually begins, it's already ceased to belong to him. It can therefore no longer be sold by him. Labor is the substance and the imminent measure of value, but it has no value in itself. Yeah, at the very end of this chapter, he talks about... Um... He, or I'll just quote him here, um, that classical of political economy nearly touches uh, the true relation of things without, however, consciously formulating it. This it cannot, so long as it sticks to its bourgeois skin. So he's talking about how the capitalist can't acknowledge that uh, the value of labor is greater than the price of labor, or it would undermine themselves. Yeah, it's quite a short chapter, actually. It's not um, heaps and heaps in this. No. Yeah, I guess to easily, I guess, encapsulate that, that last part, um, he, he mentions up, I think, is it on the still the first page of the chapter? Like, um, the value of labor, the idea of value is not only completely obliterated, but actually reversed. Its expression is imaginary as the value of the earth. These imaginary expressions arise, however, from the relations of production themselves. They are categories for the phenomenal forms of the essential relations, that in their appearance, things often represent themselves in inverted form is pretty well known in every science except political economy. We're seeing that, that dialectical side where we're talking about the, the relations of production here. Coming back to DNHM. Whenever it comes down to that, like something that we're seeing today, especially in, in um, environmental research, um, especially environmental economics and whatnot, um, it's like we're seeing a paradox in what you think you should see from what you actually do. So it's like uh, what we see is the energy rebound effect as, as we see... Um, generally um, efficiency of use of resources going up oftentimes what is seen especially in western societies such as germany and whatnot is actually the increase in um the uh whatever it is uh, emissions and total like output of pollution and whatnot and that's not necessarily you know having anything to do with the form of greener energy itself or an efficiency in you know production without supposedly less greenhouse gases but what what is seen in that is this kind of effect that is um 
it's your production is actually like you're actually producing or the material throughput is technically less um going into your your production itself of energy um and cost is driven down and then what happens after that cost is driven down is you then see an inverse of what you think you should be seeing with more efficient greener resources and you see the use of more energy and it drives it up so it's like it it is existing in this dialectic and you do kind of see the inverse and it's not necessarily a paradox that exists in dialectic but like unless you overcome that you're not going to actually get out of that kind of a system. Um, and that's what's, I mean, whether it's wage labor um, manifesting itself in, in this way, or whether it's seeing the um, rise in use of energy and um, actually the overall, um, like, the, yeah, overall emissions, um, like, it it does happen in in every other field so yeah so what you're saying is that climate crisis is going to force the whole world to change its relationship of production or die huh i mean yeah and we we will probably be covering that soon in this new to be named project very nice can't wait for the project, not the oh yeah destruction of all life. Not not the dying oh, yeah. part. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Oh. Why well, can't wait for the forcing us to change? But you know how that goes. Yeah. So one thing that he does mention in this chapter is he just kind of touches on why we don't mind being paid wages, even when we're working, even when the capitalist is receiving more than their fair share. And first, he's, he goes back to talking about the Colvay system, which you mentioned earlier on in the book. Um, I mean, it's neither here nor there for the moment, but he's basically talking about under slave labor, even the work that you're doing to pay for your own subsistence, it appears as unpaid labor, but in wage labor, I'll, I'll quote him, which I know we're quoting Max a lot in this chapter, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Um, <laughs> he says, in wage labor, on the contrary, even surplus labor or unpaid labor appears as paid. In the one case, the property relation conceals the slave labor for himself. In the other case, the money relation conceals the uncompensated labor of the wage laborer. We may therefore understand the decisive importance of the transformation of the value and price of labor power and other power of wages or into the value and price of labor itself. All the notions of justice held by both the worker and the capitalist, all the mystifications of the capitalist mode of production, all capitalism's illusions about freedom, all the apologetic tricks of vulgar economics, have as their basis the form of appearance discussed above, which makes the actual relation invisible, and indeed presents to the eye the precise opposite of that relation. So when you feel like you're making money, you're actually being stolen from. Yeah, it's it's that blending of, of all hours of the day we've talked about in the past, where you can't really pick out any one second of the day and say this second is actually surplus value and this one is actually uh, necessary labor. It's that alienation of of when and how they're taking that that value from us. Exactly. Yeah, capitalism's really opaque. It obscures it obscures a lot of things. Like we mentioned earlier on in in the book, when you see a finished commodity, so you look at a guitar, you don't think, oh, there's the wood. Someone you know made that wood and carved it and put it into that position. There's strings made out of 
nylon or steel or whatever, and the pegs are made out of this, and they're all put together, and somebody made all of those things separately and put them together. You don't see that. You just see the finished product. It's the same in this. Capitalism works so well because you don't see what's happening. It's always behind some kind of curtain. And I think that's what Marx works quite hard to do, is to expose what's actually happening. It's like a conspiracy theory that's actually true. <laughs> Sorry for any conspiracy theory-loving listeners out there. <laughs> I, I love my, my brain, I just went like totally blank because I was thinking of the folly of uh, American right-wing libertarians and uh, specifically with this. But uh, yeah, it's just it's... like the real world is so dark and ugly. Why do you need to go making shit up about it? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, like that's you don't I mean. have to think about the the vampires in the government anymore. Max actually loves the vampires. Yeah, Mar- actually, I'll take that back. Mark oh, yeah. does love the vampires. Yeah, but, um, super important to remember the vampires. But yeah, there we go. What's really happening is like so much more horrifying than half of what they say, though. It's just like. Now, if you could just be like actually grounded in reality, you'd see that you don't really need those wild conspiracy theories that you could be just as angry with reality. You don't have to make shit up to be that angry. <laughs> yeah, and you can actually fight what's real. So Carl Sagan wrote a book called The Demon Haunted World. And in it... Oh, the he... Great Carl. Yeah, The Great Carl. Um, so uh, he wrote a book called The Demon Haunted World, and in this book he examines like the human tendency to believe pseudoscience or conspiracy, or not necessarily conspiracy, hmm. but things that are not true. And um, basically the conclusion he comes to is that people want to understand things, and when we have partial knowledge of things, we don't understand how to get to the other parts, um, that we fill in the holes. And that's how, like... Uh, I don't know, crystals or something. Um, he talks about crystals. He talks about like something, something, something. Marianne Williamson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. You just need to align your chakras. Basically, bring it right back yeah, to that. <laughs> so, um, but I would say that it's actually a human tendency to want to know things and to understand them, and when we don't have access to the knowledge, um, to help us fill in those holes or even understand how to find answers when we question then we just take whatever information is given to us in the holes and unfortunately this system alienates us so much from this the system as a whole that we fill in the holes and then theories run yep. rampant and believe them because they don't have the knowledge to pick it up and so yeah. like no it makes perfect right. sense right and so it's absolutely like us doing what we're doing right now and talking about um capital is like helping to break through that like hopefully filling the gaps in some people's knowledge of of the world yeah the demystifying of capital as right exactly because people want to understand it but if they don't know how to understand it that's really what it is so like libertarian they're weird as shit because they have narrow perspective so like the holes that have been filled have been filled with with you know, nonsense reinforcing yeah. ideals. And so, like, basically, any any search for answers back to, oh, well, like, you should, I don't know, talk to your pastor about it or some shit when you're, like, dealing with a labor issue. <laughs> or, like, it's like, oh, well, maybe you should pull yourself up by your bootstraps when really there's an actual problem. Like, the, the set of 
responses to to all of these questions anyone could have in those realms, there's already there's the answer. That's that's the fight we're up against. Is that there are answers, so they're nuts. Like it's nutty, but like, but it makes yeah not illogical. No, it makes and it's sense. not outside of human nature. So I mean, all of us, I'm sure, were products of this having knowledge and filling in the gaps ourselves. I like that vacuum of knowledge type way of looking at it. It's like if there is a vacuum of knowledge, you'll just fill it with whatever. And I think I don't know people I've met who, um, for example, believe something like flat Earth theory or Antarctica is a massive wall of ice that you're not allowed to go past because the government won't let you see the secret bases behind it. <laughs> or I don't know, Australia is like a right. doesn't exist, and it's if you've ever been there, then you just got flown to South America and. <laughs> lots of actors surrounding you or something like anyone I've met has believed these things which yeah like we can laugh at them right because we, we know it's just not true but people who believe this they're like very inquisitive people and they're just trying to fill in the gaps yeah. which they mm-hmm. uh, you understand why people believe these conspiracies because they're told that the world is one thing and it's completely different why wouldn't you start to get suspicious it's just a shame that people are channeled down these these avenues rather than you know having 8 billion people reading Marx. Yeah, but it also makes sense right, exactly. because the, the capitalism and the alienation within it, it as Jess said, makes these vacuums. So it, it makes sense that there are all these unanswered questions that people are kind of looking in the wrong places for because the way capital itself exists kind of it, by its own design makes these vacuums of knowledge and and makes these uh, spaces of alienation and misunderstanding of your relation to your boss or your relation to your mode of production. And that's where, as you said, um, in those void, you know, conspiracy runs rampant. As a personal anecdote, Seamus from like 2007, eight ish area between there and 2011 um, with my Christian bringing i guess like at the time i was i mean it was a liberal christian household progressive but at the same time i I was definitely grasping at straws um i was raised with kind of this anti-communist ethos because you know family that was you know always taught to hide under their desks and whatnot or like they were exposed to people who may have come from Russia, but didn't necessarily understand any of what was being discussed or, you know, all of that stuff, you know, left me with a lot of holes. And I mean, I was grasping at straws and like, even at one point grasping through revelation for like a sense of justice, (laughs) like, cause I, I just, I could see the world was so devoid of it. And so I was grasping anywhere I could see, and then at the same time, it was, uh, there was like, I, I was super pro Israel at this time too. So like, I'm just going to straight up, put it out there that like, yeah, it, I was old Seamus is canceled. Yeah. I'm canceled. <laughs> I have to be canceled. I, uh, yeah. L- the, the liberal me way back. Better though, right? Oh yeah. Well <laughs> now I'm like super so... pro Palestinian. So, and, and I have cool. been for like the past decade. So it's uh yeah cool. yeah back then it was I, I was filling these empty spaces with a lot of stuff and it was and i was grasping at straws 
and like that yeah it, it's a real thing and um definitely it's it's important to try and understand um like these key and core concepts yeah when i was a kid i was uh force fed those the left behind novels i don't know if you remember those my, my oh my god the same I do not. yeah so yes. so um my my mother is a wild well she was more of a revolutionist then than i would say she is now she's definitely trying to be more of a progressive christian these days but when i was a kid i was raised uh catholic and uh she was very much like a revelationist sort of like you know revelationist pro-zionism is what it was is mm-hmm. is the genuine belief that Yikes. they have to return to um the holy land so that the apocalypse can be carried out like that really weird biblical shit and that's what left behind was exactly was for yeah they were about indoctrinating yeah. children with this revelationist ideology it was bad yeah the book of exactly revelation on too, dude. is like just so genocidal like i realized that paul wrote it to sneak it into like a weird urban pagan uh rome but like yeah you you can't get away with some of the shit that's in that damn book it's like talking about streets running with blood like that's some stuff that's gonna like the real dark biblical shit like the the darkest of the dark chapters of of the bible so and like this was like you know 2006 through 2008 where you know economic crisis people are losing their mind and and catholics were and still are turning to revelationist ideology and it's pretty fucked up and i think that's only going to escalate as Mm. as we come into this um potential uh big recession that uh folks have been talking about and Smith is just back onto the yeah. Bible of the working class. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The Bible of the working yeah. class. It's way better than the Bible, man. Yeah. <laughs> no. I, I do much prefer it, actually. Well, I've, I haven't read the uh, OG Bible yet, but I'm sure I'll get that one. This, this one took precedence. But um, yeah, back to the kind of this whole just... conspiracy <laughs> type thing. It's not like there is, it's not like your boss is there and he's like, oh, I'm going to misdirect you by sending you a link to a Flat Earth Society website and you know, trick people so they're not thinking about this. Most of the time, they're not thinking about this kind of thing either. Um, There's a quote just at the end of the chapter where he says, let us consider, on the other hand, the capitalist. He wishes to receive as much labor as possible for as little money as possible. In practice, therefore, the only thing that interests him is the difference between the price of labor power and the value which its function creates. But he tries to buy all commodities as cheaply as possible, and his own invariable explanation of his profit is that it is a result of mere sharp practice, of buying under the value and selling over it. Hence, he never comes to see that if such a thing as the value of labor really existed and he really paid this value, no capital would exist and his money would be transformed into capital. I think- Gee, where have I heard that before? Yeah, it's not that it's not that capitalists are intentionally trying to su- suppress truth, though of course that happens as well. A lot of the time, people who are making a profit off of you, they just think that they don't understand how it's happening, basically which is why it's so important that we understand why it's happening so we can organize against it. Honestly, I'm more inclined to believe that uh, capitalists in Marx's day were a little more like this. <laughs> but like today, we definitely have, I guess, more so, I, I guess it still is technically a, a structural conspiracy rather than like, you know, individual capitalists working directly with one another 
but that also happens. So, yeah. So should we close out that chapter and move on to 20? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the note I gave earlier uh, when I talked about the price of labor, that was actually from the beginning of chapter 20. And chapter 20 okay. is time wages. And the first note I said there was that the price of labor is the sum paid for a given quantity of labor. So time wages is where we're talking about selling your labor time, dollars an hour, uh, salary a week, salary a year, you know, that sort of thing. And the way he works out the average price of labor is the average daily value of labor power divided by the average number of hours in the working day, which sounds obvious, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's worth pointing out obvious things. There's a lot of stuff in this book. Yeah, and, and time wages, this is actually, a, it, it's a fairly simple concept, obviously. Like, you know, it's, it's literally just your wage. It's, you get, most of us get paid this way. I get paid this many dollars an hour, and that's just how we kind of see it. So, like, at face value, this seems like a, a relatively um, simple concept. But what we start to see is that through, like, time wages and what we'll see even more in the next chapter on peace wages, is that this means of paying us is one of the ways where we start to see laborers um, set against one another. So like, it's no longer just a laborer coming to the marketplace to sell his labor to the capitalist, and that's the only person he's bargaining with. We're now at this point where realizing your labor value is starting to come into contradiction with the other workers who are trying to realize theirs. Yeah, there's a... Uh... I guess right before this whole daily value of labor power over working day, it's pretty important. Like, I guess, well, some folks who aren't Marxists don't get this yet, but uh, the daily value of labor power over working day of a given number of hours. And then Marx says, it of course loses all meaning as soon as the working day ceases to contain a definite number of hours. The connection between paid and unpaid labor is destroyed. The capitalists can now wring from the labor a certain quality of surplus labor without allowing him the labor time necessary for his own subsistence. He can annihilate all regu uh, regularity of employment and according to his own convenience, caprice, and interest of the moment make the most enormous overwork alternate with or alternate with relative or absolute cessation of work. He can, under pretense of paying the air quotes normal price of labor, abnormally lengthen the working day without corresponding to the compensation of the laborer. Hence, the perfectly rational revolt of 1860 of the London laborers employed the building of trades against the attempt of the capitalists to impose on them this sort of wage by the hour. The legal limitation of the working day puts an end to such mischief, although not, of course, to the dim diminution of employment caused by competition of machinery, by changes in quality of laborers employed, and by crisis of par uh, partial or general. This kind of talks like, it's basically like explaining how crisis in employment arises or can arise, how um, the capitalists themselves can determine whether or not you are going to be working longer, um, whether or not your labor is actually worth less, and and then you have to work longer, or even you know even if it's still worth the same, um, the the prices of the market you know 
going up determines that you have to work longer if you're going to um like meet your base needs or your like the necessities of life um and that this is like i mean it's it comes at you know a, it's a further dispossession from the dispossession that had already happened from like the peasants being able to work the land um like under the treaty of the forest and whatnot and um like technically 1230 england and scotland uh, and like that was for like continuously just like eroded until um the enclosure acts were signed after the Spean hamlin laws um which basically in short were just like basically saying that you know people still had the right to subsist to meet their own subsistence um and then the the enclosure acts basically were saying no you don't have the right to to meet your own subsistence you no longer have the right to work the land and and the the landlord air quote no longer has to ensure your right to live on said land and now they can just dispossess you from it and and so that was like in like the roughly around the 1600s as you know the industrial revolution or as the one of the first industrial revolutions starts you know begins all the way up through the 17 early 1700s of the first um european industrial revolution and like when people are totally dispossessed from their land uh carl polanyi talks about this a lot he he has his issues being a revisionist and somewhat an opportunist boo but like he does put like do a lot of great scholarship over like what was the trend like transition of the liberal system like into capitalism basically from slave society and dispossessing of people of their land to force like like to proletarianize them basically and uh, this encapsulates it perfectly about like the cycle that continues under capitalism and unless you break down those like fundamental um like contradictions within the system and the the capitalists themselves not necessarily seeing what um you know it w what they are doing because if they did it would undermine them completely and totally like it really does show that you know the the necessity is to transcend this entire system so yeah moving forward from that yeah well one of the things we kind of see in this chapter is how the capitalist both creates and benefits from crisis so like while one capitalist is creating this crisis where people are becoming increasingly more desperate um, through the selling of our, our wages by time, this desperation is manifested in, in workers willing to undermine other workers by selling at a lower value, which the other capitalist, capitalist B, can now create a greater surplus off of that more desperate workforce. So like we're seeing how capitalism kind of necessitates the creation of others, of people who are more exploited in its ever, you know, downward seeking, reduce the cost, um, increase the surplus, that drive it always has. Yeah, I think one other thing that I got from this chapter is um, it's just basically now we've got this prevailing sense that if you're a worker, the time doesn't mean shit. It isn't important what you're doing. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, like if you work in, in hospitality or something, 
and someone says to you, what days are you working next week? And you're like, I don't know, because I haven't been told yet, even though the week starts tomorrow. Huh. And I think... Like, My life. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? And I don't know, in, in this chapter, he talks about that um, the revolt of the London building workers in the 1860s. I think it's worth mentioning, back when Marx was writing this, it was usual to get a daily wage. Like, hourly wages weren't as common, as far as I'm aware. And so for them being told, yeah, we're going to pay you four hours your work, they were like, well, no, if I'm putting the day aside to go to work, I'm going to work for a full day. You're not going to pay me. I'm not going to turn up and you're going to say after two hours, right, you're done, go home, which also has happened to me as well. I'm sure it's happened to most yep. people listening. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're quiet. We yeah. don't need you. Go home. It's like, well, I'm already here. Maybe I traveled far to get here. It's just really disrespectful. And there's no, it's like no importance on your time. Am I hearing that right to a job and like actual good gainful employment and you know, the base means for what you need to live are important? You know what? You are hearing that, yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the means of subsistence matter. Soviet Union was good, actually. It's mental, though. Like, it was. Their, their terms for this, um, this strike or walkout or whatever it was, they were like, if we're coming to work, we need to work for X amount of hours minimum. Otherwise, we're not working at all. We'll happily take an hourly wage. You can pay us by the hour. We don't care as long as we're working at least the amount of hours that we want to work. So, yeah, it's a weird concept, but it makes sense. Yeah, the fact we have zero-hour contracts in 2019 is, I mean, we, we all understand how it works. So we know that it's not that crazy that it happens. But I don't know how you can be like a liberal or someone who thinks that you know, history is always progressing and humans are always progressing to think that we're still in the same situation that we were 150 years ago. At the end of history. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Fukuyama. (laughs) I mean, thinking of like workers in the global South as well, it's conditions are no better there now than they were in the mid 1800s or something in, in England. Yeah. I mean, and conditions here in the United States are regressing. And in some parts of the United States, they are absolutely abysmal. Like um, many areas in Alabama are yeah, going rural through. poverty is shocking. Yeah. And it's like, it's one of those things where it's like whenever a fucking liberal goes and says, uh, oh, well, they, they vote Republicans. So, you know, it. I, I actually kind of feel fine about that. It's just like super fucking yes, gross. Vulgar, absolutely vulgar. Especially with how uh, how much of Alabama is actually like you know oppressed and you know f- you know former slaves. Like not all of them are ADOS, but like you know their populations, which did get brutally oppressed and repressed, and are still to this day oppressed. Like there are reasons why people won't go, like don't necessarily go out and vote. It's not, you know. And we can actually talk about that um, when we talk about chapter twenty-two. There is um, just like the way national concentrations of capital work, and how, like, why is it that the cost of living is so much lower the further south you go in this country? So, mm-hmm. but yeah. Um, sorry to interrupt you there. Could be on. Chapter 21, Peace Wages. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, in, in 21 here, in, in Peace Wages, we start to see that... Um, well, the first thing he kind of says is that peace wages are pretty much just hourly wages converted into another form. And that, like, in the same workplace, you might see side-by-side workers, some being paid by time wage, others by peace wage. But the big point 
he makes about peace wages is that by by incentivizing the um, worker to get paid by the piece and produce more in a shorter amount of time, they're also finding more space to extract surplus value in less time. So piece wages is another tool to drive the actual price of labor for the capitalists down as low as possible. Yeah, this is one that I find is, for myself, I've encountered it when doing, for example, fruit picking work or something like that, picking kiwis or apples or grapes or something. Uh, maybe with grapes, it was a little different for wine, but um, you're expected to pick a lot. Basically, you get big barrels or kind of backpack type thing, inverted backpack that's on your top that you're dropping fruit into, and you're paid by the amount that you pick. The intention of that is that you're getting paid less for than you would be getting if you were on an hourly wage. It's just a way to kind of compensate for the fact that, okay, some people are going to be slower. We don't want to pay them as if they were making us as much money. So we'll say, hey, if you don't pick as much, you don't get paid as much. And I'm sure it's the same in in sweatshops and stuff like that if you're not making as many clothes you're not getting paid as much so it's like it's a constant like drain on people the closest thing that i've had uh exploited peace wages um is when i worked in insurance and uh insurance sales basically they can either pay you by the hour and they pay you shit or they can pay you commission Five percent sales yeah can go weeks and weeks and weeks without any money and um especially then you just get hired into those jobs. It's super common. Like if you get hired to be an independent agent, it's super common. weeks of labor without having a single penny. Huh. Yeah. So that's happened to me. The first insurance job I had when I was where I was training, I was actually helping a mentor make sales while she was training me and I did not get paid for it. And so I worked with her. Yeah. And you got nothing. And like Right, and got literally nothing. But um, yeah, like when it comes to like work like that, it was like it basically resulted in not getting paid. The way Mark sums it up is saying, peace wages are not in fact a direct expression of any relation of value. It is not therefore a question of measuring the value of the piece by the labor time incorporated in it. It is rather the reverse. The labor the worker has expended must be measured by the number of pieces he has produced. In time wages, the labor is measured by its immediate duration. In peace wages, by the quantity of products in which the labor has become embodied during a given time. I think this connects interestingly back to um, something Harvey talked about in one of the previous classes is uh, the Western sense of temporality. And I, I think if anybody wants to uh, dig a little deeper into why someone would do time or peace wages, giving his discussion on that and any others, I'm not sure about um Wait, what about Uber? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I was, uh, I I specifically was like, you know, doing Uber, Uber Eats, uh, Lyft, any of those kinds of jobs are are kind of, to to some extent, like modern day peace wages. Um, At least, you know, in the the West and also taking into account that we still have peace wages that happen in the West. I mean, um, back where someone that I, I know is from uh, towards the border, um, there, you know, it's most, a lot of the economy is lettuce in the winter and the rest of the economy is 
you know, either military or once again, food production throughout the rest of the year. So it's like, where does the labor come from that? Well, typically it's migrant workers from just over the border um, in like San Luis, Mexico or Alcadones. So it's like, th there's a lot that goes on that is like, uh, you know, actual peace wages here. But like, we also have people who, you know, they need extra work they're not making enough or uh, several folks I know basically like just out of college working as like a, a lower position within a school district um, as like a band teacher, but not, you know, the band teacher quite yet. But then in the middle of getting hired by the district or paperwork not going through the district, not really caring about doing paperwork. Or, you know, for months at a time not getting paid, uh, just like Jess was mentioning with insurance, you know, people got to make a living somehow. Yeah, you could not pay your rent, but, you know, that won't turn out so well. And, you know, people do, you know, do rent strikes or, you know, not pay their rent for long periods of time. But, like, eventually you are going to be forced into some form of you know making money so you can act like live pay rent pay medical debt etc there, there's like so much that would drive somebody to peace wages and in marx's time i mean it would just be the expropriation of you know your family's land being forced off of um homesteads being basically like places that weren't necessarily connected like you know urban centers or even rural like areas within a state you know you're losing basically all of your material basis or your ability to either make a living your home um your ability to provision or, or get food for yourself even often your cultural services i guess like things that have come from your past, your, your family's past. Basically, like your spirit is crushed. So, yeah, I could definitely see peace wages as something that, you know, back in Marx's time or even more like, yeah, I mean, I gotta sell my labor for less if I'm gonna make anything. I think that when you're dealing with peace wages, one thing you have to consider is the competitive aspect of it. You're kind of being pitted against your fellow workers and exactly. whenever i've experienced it in the past people work hard because they want to make as much as possible because they want to make as much money as possible so whatever it is that you're doing like yes yeah, say if you're picking fruit or something like that there are people who are really going hard and trying to do as much as possible and marx notices that in this chapter he says the wider scope that peace wages give to individuality tends to develop both that individuality and with it, the worker's sense of liberty, independence, and self-control, and also the competition of workers with each other. The peace wage, therefore, has a tendency, while raising the wages of individuals above the average, to lower this average itself. You feel like you have more control over your life when you're given this option of peace wages. But what's really happening is you're undercutting everyone that you're working with. Yeah, it's, it's all about the capitalist drive to constantly increase productiveness, because increased productiveness presents more opportunity for extraction. So like they're, they're shifting that, uh, that need to, to make yourself more productive onto the workers and making 
it not just the capitalist trying to increase productiveness for his own sake, but it's making the workers increase productiveness at the expense of each other. Yeah, you can be there making maybe not loads of money, but you're feeling like you're doing okay. But at the same time, it means someone who you're working with because they're not guaranteed that kind of hourly wage or, or daily rate, definitely, is that, um, yeah, they can be making less than what they actually need. And the way you're, they look at it in the end is like, well, tough luck, you know, I worked harder, I deserve more, which I am not agreeing with, in case that wasn't clear. <laughs> well, it also, it, um, it, in a way, it drives down what is necessary to pay the labor, right? Yes, definitely, yeah. Like, because you're, you're increasing, increasing the productivity, you're also undermining the wage of the person next, next to you. Because why, why hire this person who can only produce 10 chairs an hour when you have another uh, more desperate worker who's willing to work themselves to death to make 15 chairs an hour and pay them the same? So by create, uh, increasing productivity in the same amount of time, which is what a lot of the obfuscation of peace wage is designed to do, it's also undercutting the value of the work itself. You heard it here, folks. Uh, liberal bootstrapperism is, in fact, proto-scab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that covers the chapter on peace wage pretty well. Does anybody have any more notes from that? No, no I think... I think I'm good. All right. So um, moving on to the next chapter, uh, chapter 22, which is uh, National Differences of Wages. And this is where a lot of what we were talking about back in you know, chapter 16 at the beginning of this discussion starts to come into play, where we're talking about the means of subsistence, determining the value of labor, and how different things that are considered socially necessary as a means of subsistence will create a different base uh, labor wage. And this is where we're kind of talking about um, the discussions we had on minimum wage a number of chapters back. How, you know, in different areas, like in America, people consider a cell phone to be socially necessary. People consider a car to be socially necessary. So the basic cost of living would be different from a part of the world where they don't consider those things to be socially necessary. Sounds obvious when you say it out loud, but people didn't know this before. Yeah. Mark's just dropping common sense on everyone. <laughs> and one of the things um, Harvey touches upon briefly uh, when we're talking about this is how these different concentrations of capital in different areas and, and the different uh, means of subsistence, and even going back to the point where um, we were talking about how fertile soil is the most ripe for extraction from the capitalist. So like we're talking about how imbalances can arise regionally, geographically, based on whatever your your nation state or whatever, to create these imbalances and and really prime the situation for these extractive circumstances between uh, nations. So, like where where con- capital is concentrated most has this imbalance of power over these resource rich places that don't have the concentrations of capital that put them in a situation of being extracted from by these other regions. So we're getting into a little Lenin. Yeah, I'm starting to see uh, formulations of uh, the national question coming up here. We definitely have, uh, you know, exploitation of extraterritorial regions that could, um, c- could lead into the exploitation of 
people in an area that the imperial power does not have any connection to whatsoever. And also it's, it's not just about, like I said, it's not just about how fertile the soil is or whatever that primes these places for uneven or imbalances in, in what's socially necessary and imbalances in capital value. It's also, it's also about the, the different strategies that capital takes in different regions lead to these. And so we're talking about relations of production again. We're talking about how, like, even within two very seemingly similar capitalist societies, just small strategic differences can lead to different means of subsistence, different definitions of what is socially necessary. So even within capitalist society, you see imbalances arise. It's not just geopolitical. It's also um, within capital itself there are contradictions. Yeah, you do see a little bit in this chapter of outsourcing or how manufacturing is done more in the global south than, than in the west or the global north. He mentions that the different quantities of com- commodities of the same kind produced in different countries in the same working time have therefore unequal international values which are expressed in different prices, which is basically just saying it's possible for something to be cheaper. The same thing made in the same time. It's, it's going to be cheaper somewhere else depending on what the especially necessary labor time is there or what the wages are in that country, which again, something that sounds really obvious to us living in the 21st century, but breaking new ground probably there in its day. Yeah. All like, it's all about all these different things. Yeah. I like this chapter because it really, it, it introduces us to, to how colonialism and, and imperialism can happen without actually diving into those concepts. Mm Mm-hmm. That's Lenin's job. Yeah. Yeah. This is basically just like, look, this is like the outgrowth of, of this. If you're leaving it to, to run without, you know, actually changing it, then then this is like it's inevitably going to be that your like the industrial, I guess, capitals or imperial centers like run out of their resources or even not even that, but like you know, you, you're no longer have competitive prices in the wage market. And so then you're, you know, exploiting people in the global south because it's easier for profit to be generated to do so. Yeah, I think, for example, Arnie mentions in, in an earlier episode how they, um, how they didn't want Mar- uh, Marxism to be dogmatic for them. And I think it's really interesting to see here how you can see where Lenin got ideas from Marx and in case you were like maybe dealt in different aspects of theory or feel like you've just jumped into it for a reason that you hadn't um, you hadn't had it fully explained to you before. It's nice to see these ideas kind of supporting each other, seeing where the origin of them were. Yeah, how one how one thing strengthens the other. Yeah. This is this is this concept is a primer concept for another concept. So like the differences in national wages, like the regional difference in, in value and the regional difference in wages and what's socially necessary is the primer for it's foundational for what makes these other concepts possible. And we get to see the growth of that through Lenin's imperialism stage of capital or Stalin's, the national and colonial question. And I think the really great thing about it is that they're not difficult concepts. And I don't mean to like say, if you're struggling to understand this, then you shouldn't be because it's easy. I'm definitely struggling a lot of the time while reading this, but it's just kind of unlearning a lot of things that you already knew about the world. And once you kind of figure out how to think dialectically about things, basically the more you read, the easier it becomes. 
but the concepts themselves aren't particularly difficult and they all they all build on each other first time i tried to get through this probably six years ago i was i had to really like stop for a second because it was actually kind of like this whole text challenged my liberal upbringing and like weirdly enough the economic and philosophical manuscripts of 1844 was the thing that actually brought me back to this like not that it's easier to read but it's shorter so yeah (laughs) yeah, it uh it definitely got me through a lot of the core concepts being like oh yeah no this is actually all based off of data and information and it's like you know it's actually a comprehensive study and critical analysis and then i came back to capital (laughs) capital is it's it is an intimidating book to step up to i mean it it quite literally weighs a lot it's (laughs) a heavy piece of literature to boot i mean that's why this group exists When, when you step up to it exactly because it's intimidating but what's contained within it though intimidating is it's not that complex in in the long run because Marx really does he he shows you the point at which capital starts and then he brings you to its logical conclusion and and yeah I mean start a book club if you're reading this yeah read it read it with friends honestly yeah or if you can't read it with friends then we'll be your friends in your ears and you can listen to us <laughs> exactly but like if you can find someone you're gonna have such a be- much better time and there was uh honestly it's it was like explained to me this way by one of my professors at university. Actually, not one of my professors, but one of the uh, CCJ professors. Um, that you know, Capital is really a book that actually like the people who will understand it probably right off the bat first are those who are actually working, <laughs> like you know, the workers mm-hmm. that are yeah, those right. most affected by it. Yeah. The ones who are most yeah. affected, like it'll be so much easier. Like he's mentioned that like, you know, his own reading groups it have been, you know, those people who have dropped in and, and done like participated that actually got more out of it than the petty bourgeois. And, and even as a worker, you read this and get flashbacks. Right. It'll, I mean, yeah. it'll, it'll bring you right back to that traumatic workplace. You quit when you were, 17 it'll bring you right back to that boss who made you work overtime without getting paid for it every single fucking week and and it'll it puts you right back in in your own skin and it's so easy to understand when you realize that he's talking about things that you've experienced as a worker and and we all right Mm -hmm. exactly yeah there's a reason they call it the bible of the working class there's a reason why we go off on tangents all the time about stuff that we've experienced in the past it's because it yeah, it's, it's it's something that I think most people have gone through. And I mean, if you are struggling with this book, millions of people, millions and millions of people have read it before and have understood it. And you're going to get there. Like, especially if you're working through it with someone, you're going to get there. It's not like an impossible goal. I mean, when I started this, I didn't think I was going to get much further than I did the first time I tried, which is like chapter three or something like that. And I don't know, it must be about what were we about seventy percent of the way through the yeah. book now? Yeah, we are we are close. We're on the yeah. straight. Yeah, we are definitely almost there. I I'm mean, very chapter excited. one is so intimidating. It's a big thing to be able to check off. It's hard to get started. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah those, well, that's the those first thing few that was, chapters. That was so daunting for me whenever I first tried, and I mean, it's still a slog. <laughs> like it's not any easier. Yeah, because he's laying um, down foundation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but one more stuff click later. So does anyone have anything else on on wages? So I I thought it was interesting. Um, uh, Harvey mentioned that this is like the point in the text where he starts positioning, or Marx kind of shifts his argument from the individual worker to the um, to a class argument, and um, that's where we were looking at, you know, like surplus surplus labor um, or surplus value <laughs> uh, over and above. <laughs> yes, uh, there's so many surplus words. But anyway, he was talking about how, like, judging this on an entire population of workers instead of the individual who's exploited by the individual capitalist, looking at the class, um, the capitalist class exploiting the proletarian class um, and on a mass scale. And he also examines, once again, what is and isn't. He doesn't say what isn't, but he talks about what is productive labor. I guess he does kind of say what isn't. But he, um, Harvey kind of positioned it where he was like, well, it's not very nice of him to say it this way, but he wasn't talking about like productive in a general sense, but productive in relation to capitalism. And he talks about the only productive labor is um, when you're actually making surplus value for the capitalist and that other work is not productive and that um, he talks about the the production system as a whole um, will have some workers that are productive and some that are not, but this is kind of how he shifts from the talk of individual scale to um, the entire class being exploited as a whole. And on that note, we're also talking about a shift of of production not being for the sake of the production of commodities, but for the production of more capital. That is the shift that capitalism brings about on the process right. of production. It's not about what you produce. It's about the capital that what you produce creates. That's what the capitalist refers to when they're talking about productivity. Exactly. Other than that, I think we've mostly covered this section. I don't think there's anything else I wanted to add. <laughs> yeah. And I, I knew that this last last chapter would uh, would bring us off some tangents because it touches so much upon much more like it's it's the foundation of a lot of mm -hmm. uh, more modern um marxist theory Thank you for listening to Pros of the Book Club. We are on Twitter at Pros Book Club, and you can follow us for updates on our episodes, or if you'd like access to additional resources, you can contact us through there. If you'd like to join us in the book club, you can become a patron to our parent podcast, Pros of the Roundtable. Just check out patreon.com slash prospod. For just one US dollar per month, you can join us in the Discord server, 
where we meet every Sunday to discuss what we've been reading. As always, a big thank you to the Craigbot for helping us to record, and also to Keenan for our intro theme. If you're still looking for more Marxist-Leninist content, you should go over to prosepod.com USSP, where you can find a whole array of podcasts created by our friends and comrades. Join us next week for our penultimate episode on Karl Marx's Capital Volume 1, where we'll be covering all of Part 7, The Process of Accumulation of Capital. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.